Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. My name's Jesse. I'll be your host today, and it is NADOC Week. For those of you in Australia listening to this on NADOC Week, this is a really important time for our Indigenous culture and for all the rest of us in Australia. If you're listening to this outside of NADOC Week, I think this is still a really good opportunity to reflect on Indigenous Australia and our role in the shaping of the history of this country. But I'm not alone today. I'm joined by Pastor Luke Stewart. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good on you, Jesse. Thanks for the invitation. Keen to be here and to speak about the ministry that I'm in and also the heritage that I hold. So thank you for the invitation. Luke, would you just be able to kick us off with a little bit of your background, where you come from, who your people are, and a little bit about the ministry that you're involved in right this moment? Yeah, absolutely. So as you've said there, Jesse, my employment is a pastor for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm employed as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Director for the South Queensland Conference. And now the acronym for that is ATSIM. So that ministry allows me to work with First Nations people of Australia. And I've been doing that. This is now all up uh, my 15th year as being not just in South Queensland, but also in far North Queensland. That's him, director in that space as well. So a bit about me. I've got an interesting makeup of culture. So on, we'll start with my father's side. That's my Aboriginal, my Indigenous side. And so my father's people are the Wiradjuri people. And we, our family came out of Condobolin. Now, for those who don't know, Condobolin is in central New South Wales. You would have heard places like Orange and Wagga and Dubbo and various little country towns like that. So... How do we end up coming out of a little place like that? We got bits and pieces of the story. And where we fell in is that my great-grandmother was taken off the Murray River. Now, she was a, a full-blood Aboriginal lady. And the protection board of the time thought that it was safer for Indigenous people to not live in groups or family, but to go to, to missions. My great-grandmother was taken, all we know is, off the Murray River somewhere and taken to the Condobolin Aboriginal Mission. And that's where my grandmother was born and grew up there. And so from there, my, my grandmother migrated into Dubbo and then eventually into Western Sydney and, and Parramatta where my father was born. So, so we're Adri man on my mother's side, oh, I'm sorry, on my father's side and Western Sydney. I grew up in Western Sydney in a good place called Mount Drawn. For those of you who know Western Sydney at all. That was my hometown. Now on my mother's side, my mother is Australian and New Zealand. And so she's a Maori. Her father was uh, Maori. He um, went to the Korean War. And once he served his time in the Korean War as a Maori soldier, he migrated to Australia, fell in love with an Australian woman and called Australia his own. So on my, on my mother's side, I'm a Ngāpui man from far northern New Zealand in North Island. So that's a little bit more about my cultural makeup. Now, with my indigenous side, there's Scottish, there's Irish, there's of the time. It was that's how the makeup was made, and and on, on my mother's side, it's a bit of German and mainly New Zealand there. So, that's a little bit about about my cultural makeup. I've got to admit, I'm a little bit jealous. That's a pretty cool c- cultural cross section that you have there. Lots of rich yeah. history, lots of rich heritage. Um, yeah, absolutely. In, that, in your family, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Luke, before we get into it, look, I will, for those of us who are wondering, there is obviously at this moment quite a number of hot button issues going on within Australia pertaining to the Indigenous community. And we're going to get to that, but I just want to stop on ATSIM just a little bit because for those of us who are listening to the podcast, many of our listeners are not people of faith. They're not part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So they may not be aware exactly what ATSIM is, what it represents, how it ministers. So would you just be able to give us a broad overview about what ATSIM is? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. The way ATSIM works is that it's a ministry that had been set up to minister to First Australian people. Now, it was some time ago and the date escapes me, 
but there was some time ago that the Australian Union, if it was the Australian Union that time or the division, that realized the best way to minister to First Nations people is through First Nation leaders, First Nation ministers. So after much time looking and finding, Uncle George Quinlan was the very first Aboriginal minister to be ordained and sent out into the work. And that just came back with wonderful results of First Nations people responding to First Nation calls. And so having someone that walks the walk, that talks the talk, that understands the cultural significant significance, sorry, and understands some of the some of the sticky areas of cultural understanding and church understanding and how to navigate through that space. So it started there where the church identified that we need First Nations people to actually minister and connect with First Nations people as leaders in the church. ADSEM is unique in that aspect, tailors the gospel to be able to minister to the First Nations perspective or First Nations needs. So I'll speak in the South Queensland context that we, in South Queensland, we have a number of areas of ministry that we dedicate to. So for instance, we have a local church ministry. So we, in South Queensland, we have a First Nations church made up of First Nations people. Other cultures are welcome to come along and worship with us. However, but we're our target audience and our dedication is towards our First Nations families, people. And so we have a local church ministry. And what that entails is preaching the gospel, contextualized in the way that we understand. So a lot of people might understand that churches are a man standing up from the front in the pulpit, preaching in a, in a, in a suit and a tie and very elegant and using the gospel, you know, theology and where that's very important, but what we realize in our First Nations church is that we really respond better in yarning circles. Mm -hmm. And so what we do in the South Queensland SM church is that we still have the gospel. We don't lower that. We don't take anything away from that, but we deliver it in a way that our mob understand. We deliver it in a way where we, it's like in a yarning circle, there's no leader. There's no one that starts it. Everyone's there together. And we talk about the topics and the issues. So for instance, we've been talking about budgeting. We all have a need in into, we, we probably could all budget better. And so some of the things that we talk about is, what are some of the challenges that we have as First Nations people in budgeting? How do we grapple with some of the family pressure of a lot of different family members would speak into someone's budget? You've got man, many families living out of the one fridge, many families coming to, to stay with you for extended periods of time. And so budgeting is a really hot topic. We talk about how do we do life as Christians and what I love about our ministry from a church point of view is that we don't put our Aboriginality on the side. We are Aboriginals, but, and Torres Strait Islanders, but we're created in God as equal first. And we look to God as God created him, humankind. We try and make sure that when we leave our church, yes, we're proud Indigenous Australians, but we're also part of the human race. And we yeah. want to be able to rub shoulders with everyone that's got culture and to just connect on the human level and also appreciate a cultural aspect as well. Various other ministries we have too is that we have a ministry for our young people in South Queensland called Dream Track. Now, Dream Track is a youth program for First Nations youth that it started going to schools and then delivering culture, delivering cultural understanding through recreation. Dream Track is a wonderful opportunity for us to connect with First Nation youth. And what that allows us to do is to go into our young people's environments around South Queensland, and this is going to be, this is also exampled around Australia as well, but to go into our environments there and just hang out and chat with young Indigenous youth. A lot of our Indigenous youth have parents that are incarcerated, siblings that are incarcerated, and they find themselves in a rut and they find themselves in an area to say, I don't really have an opportunity to go to school or to take a lunch to school and other things. So what we do there is we speak into the space of giving our young ones the understanding of who they are. Another thing we've found too is that a lot of our young Indigenous in the community, yes, they identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but they don't know how to connect. And they've never had that time sitting with elders, appreciating the culture. And so that's where we get to come in and sit down with them and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we are part of the longest living, continuing culture. And this is what your culture talks about, respect. This is what our culture talks about, what do we give to society? And we're not, we don't just take from society. It's never been a part of our First Nations understanding just to keep on taking. We, we are part of giving back as well. So 
we get to do some really fun things like abseiling, water skiing, high ropes, laser skirmish, and everything we do, we unpack into education, re-equipping, and also the base foundation of culture as well. We had some cultural leaders come out and get some ochre and paint up our kids and understand what their connection to their color of ochre that they come from, understand some of their dance, some of their language. Dream Track has just taken a new turn now where through COVID, kind of Park Dream Track because a lot of schools, it was, you couldn't do any community program engagement. And so we lost all the funding in our schools. In one way, it helped us where schools were great, but schools are limited in what they can do and how far they can take a program. We've always wanted to get into the community and also into our detention centers where our young Indigenous youth there, they're already at the lowest of their life. And so we're just working with a couple of contractors now to start a contract with Brisbane Youth Detention Center and be a part of building a release program that provides a program for young Indigenous kids that get released from Brisbane Youth Detention Center that go into a program and that we can try and stop serial repeat offenders from coming back in that cycle of incarceration. So we're still designing this program. We're still working with government agencies and youth justice, different people there to try and get this off the ground. But I'll tell you, it's going to be a really good opportunity to speak into some of the, we hear on the news, there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of boredom happening in our societies and our young ones are just, they're out there doing what they can and they're out there mucking up and playing up. And so What we love about this opportunity is that with the building the release program, it's going to give us access to our families. And so what we've always entertained is that we could take the kids on a really good program and the deadliest program we can find, but then they go back to an environment that's toxic or an environment that's not, not really encouraging them to become young men and young women. And so this opportunity gets us to sit in the house as well. So not just with the kids, we get to go home and talk to the parents and talk to the uncles and the elders and say, look, let's make some good changes through the Dream Track program. Another area of ATSI is that we, we speak into communities. So we will go out to First Nations communities and we'll run programs and we'll talk about what are the needs in your program. Encourage us with some areas that we can go back to our offices put a program together and come into your community and assist what are some of the, the areas of need in your program, in, in your community, sorry. We get a good opportunity to connect with elders and to connect with people and say to us, look, if we only had more opportunities for education, if we only had more opportunities for health and things like that. So we get to come back to our advisory committee and talk about what are some of the needs and some of the hot topics that, that ATSIM can minister to. Now, ATSIM is one of the unique ministries of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is that it speaks to the First Nation culture, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, but it's also instrumental to the non-Indigenous culture as well for exposure and for education. So we find ourselves also educating and equipping our non-Indigenous people about what Aboriginal culture is all about. And so encouraging our churches to create safe spaces for Indigenous people to come to church and feel welcome and safe to come to a church that appreciates some of the some of the sticky background in our culture, in our colonial culture, colonial history, sorry, about around the topic of church and some of the uh, the footprints that that's left on our people there. So, yeah, we get to have many exposure to many different environments. Atsim does. We have resources for both for Indigenous and non-Indigenous. So we have Bibles, we have articles, many different things that we put together so we can equip our yeah, our community to come closer to each other, but ultimately to come closer to their faith connection with God. I love that vision in many ways, so ahead of its time of the best way to minister to First Nations people is through First Nations people. Like it to, to us these days, it just feels, oh yeah, duh. But it sounds like it, it came from a really rich place of vision and, and forward looking. So just so inspiring what ATSIM does. But I don't know of any other church in Australia that has anything equivalent to ATSIM. Am I ignorant? Are there other churches that do similar stuff? No, you're absolutely on the money because the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the only denomination in Australia that has a national Indigenous body that reaches across its entire denomination across Australia. Yeah, in actual fact, Jesse, I actually think we're the only one in the world that has an Indigenous 
platform that speaks into its indigenous needs and provides equipment, training, resources. I'm pretty sure, yeah, that we're the only ones in the world that have that. What a tremendous privilege that we get to to steward that. Yeah. And so you're the director for South Queensland. There there are other branches all throughout Australia. That's correct? Yeah, nine nine in total because we have nine conferences around Australia. So therefore, the idea is to have nine at SIM directors that ministers that represents every conference. So we're pretty good in that space. I think we're struggling with Tasmania at the moment, trying to get representation in Tasmania, but yeah, in areas that we're looking forward to try and minister in that space. So we have at SIM directors as my, like myself that look after a conference space, which is which could, the South Queensland, we have 110 churches in South yeah, Queensland. Wow. We have many communities. We consider ourselves to be an urban ministry. So therefore we adapt our at SIM ministry in an urban context. And then we have at SIM directors that are in a remote and rural context. So their ministry is adapted to a remote or to a rural context. So when we come together twice a year for our advisories, it's a really good time to get together and see exactly the different aspects of ministry and how the urban are moving forward and how the rural and remote are moving forward. And it's really encouraging to see the different contexts of ATSIM. What's moving forward as well, Jesse, is our non-Indigenous ministry, educating our non-Indigenous space about the importance of ministering to First Nations people. This is moving forward in, with tremendous speed. It's, yeah, it's a real blessing to be part of. Wow, that that is exciting. Because mm. I think for many years, and I'm sure you felt this even more keenly than I have, the gulf between the capital C church, the normal quote unquote church, I'm doing that very heavily quote yeah. marks there, and the indigenous church. There's often been the sense in which they've been separate and not seen as on the same team. And I'm not just talking about our denomination, I'm talking about Christianity and First Nations people all around the world. And the fact that we have a ministry like ATSIM that's bringing the cultures together. I mean, that's Christianity, right? That's, yeah. that's the body yeah. of Christ, which is pretty incredible. And that is it, our gospel commission. That's what God commissioned us to do. And one thing I love about the Adventist church is that it's, yeah, it has identified the gospel, the commission. And as we've said earlier, that, that aha moment was, hey, we need First Nations people to minister to First Nations people. And so... There's a lot of work left yet to still do in, in that aspect of ministering to First Nations people, but we're certainly not where we used to be. We've certainly still got a long way to go as well. I'm interested, you mentioned before about worship and worshiping across a wide variety of different contexts as a part of your ministry. One of the things that I have noticed in the last couple of years, which on the whole I, I see as being quite positive, is Indigenous people all around the world reconnecting with their roots. We're moving past the ugliness of the 20th century where Indigenous people, whether in Australia or Māori in New Zealand or First Nations people in North America were segregated and, and told not to express their culture, to speak English, to disconnect from anything that their ancestors experienced. There seems to be a resurgence all around the world of Indigenous people reconnecting with the traditions of their ancestors. In the midst of that, we have Christianity, which often struggles Christians to connect and adapt to Indigenous cultures. We've seen the colonization effect all throughout the South Pacific, all throughout North America, and here in Australia. How have you seen this unfolding over the last couple of years? with the traditions of the people that you trace your ancestry back to, the traditions of the people around you in your Indigenous communities. The sticky part for mm. people like me who do not identify as an Indigenous person but do identify as a Christian is, mm. I suppose, a fear of Indigenous traditions, Indigenous dream time, all the stuff that goes along with that kind of in conflict with my Christian beliefs and my traditions and my theology. How do you think about that? I think the more that people ask those questions, the more of an understanding both communities will have. Because from an Indigenous point of view, now, if I can talk to you as an Indigenous that's not a Christian, if I can represent a community of Indigenous Australia that's not a Christian, Man, the exact same questions are being asked. The exact same questions. What is this white supremacist 
colonial religion going to do in our community, to our culture, to our understanding, our frameworks, our foundation. So, yeah, so Atsim does sit in a very unique spot, goes into a cultural setting and preaches a gospel. Now, and the thing is, the more that we ask ourselves these questions, the more we can sit down and actually have conversations, not just yes or no, or I agree or disagree. That goes nowhere and there's no depth, there's no connection in that. So what, what I'd like to share, Jesse, is the concept of Christianity first towards First Nation Australia. You know, what's interesting, and to go back a little bit to set the scene here, it was, it was 1493, so we're going back a fair while, 1493 that Pope Alexander VI issued a papal bill or a decree in which authorized Spain and the Portugals to colonize the Americans and native people as subjects to their own law. What they would do is that they would go and colonize, they would go to different continents and colonize, convert, enslave. It also justifies the enslavement, this papal bill justifies the enslavement of African-Americans, or sorry, of Africans of the time. All world explorers carried this same worldview of when they were searching for new lands. So just to sum that up, it was in 1493 that, that Pope Pius, I think he is, yeah, Pope Alexander, sorry, issued a decree to say, we, we want to expand our continents, we want to expand our horizons, and the decree allowed slavery, incarceration, and even death, Jesse, even, even death of native people that would not go with what this decree mm. was. Now, the decree was issued by the church. It wasn't issued by a government. It was issued by a pope. So when Captain James Cook surveyed the shores of Australia and the coastline of 1788, he had the same mindset of the decree that was issued by the pope, which was, as I'll repeat, you have the right to enslave, to colonize, to murder if necessary, to kill, in order to take new grants so the empire could grow. So that comes back to this, is that when, and I use these inverted commas, when Christianity was presented to First Nations people, it wasn't the Christianity that you and I talk about today in the Bible that we read. There was a Christianity that was there to enslave. It was there to colonize. It was there to murder if you went against them. It was there to take away identity because they wanted control. Coming from a non-Indigenous perspective is that we hear about, about through your ancestry lines of this decree that's coming that if you don't follow it, they're going to enslave you. They're going to take your children away. They're going to kill you if necessary. There's going to be some pushback. Mm. There's going to be some pushback and say, what is this? It wasn't presented as the gospel that we read today, that Jesus gave his life because all were created in the image of God. And the issue was sin, not color of skin, and not cultural context. The issue is sin. None of that was presented. And so when we come back to First Nations people grabbing hold of their culture again and, and identifying themselves through their cultural land connections and their names or the country they belong to, that's a proud moment because there was a really, a, there was a terrible wound in Australian's nation which took all of that identity away. It took, uh, for Wiradjuri people, we, for my grandparents and great-grandparents, they, probably my great-grandparents, they had a language that they could communicate through, which my grandparents, my, my father, and now me, we don't know anything about that. And so reconnecting back to your understanding is a real proud moment because of the fight we've had to go through through colonization to get back to where we were. So the impact on our church of, of ministering to First Nations people and is this dream time and is this cultural ancestry like within the Maori Haka, you call on your ancestors to come back and give you mana to go into your fight or to do whatever. Is this coming into the church? I, the conversation was missed at the very beginning. At the very beginning, the conversation could have been, let's understand each other. Let's take some time and understand. We, we serve a God that gave his son. We serve a God that loves us so much. In fact, we're all created in the same image of God. It would have been a completely different history if the gospel came to the shores, not a papal bill from Alexander mm -hmm. VI issuing this decree. Where do we stand today? What we do in Atsim, 
is that we educate non-Indigenous people about how to understand and interpret Aboriginal culture. Now, there is there are many different layers and level levels, sorry, of Aboriginal culture. And so you still have remote and rural that, that follow traditional law and they still practice ceremony on the spiritual side of things. And then you have probably rural and, and urban Aboriginal culture that have been removed so far from that that we're just trying to grab back as some type of identity of our connection to country and connection to culture. So here's something interesting, Jesse, to contemplate on is that the way that we identify how do you navigate around First Nations people, for instance, connecting with ancestors. I remember I shared this in one of our churches when I was preaching in, in our non-Indigenous church and said, Christianity today, we also have our ancestors speaking to us. And the first thing that came back to us was pushback. It said, no, that's <laughs> easy. We don't have that. And I said, well, if you just listen, we actually have our ancestors speaking to us in the fact that the Bible talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, mm. Isaac, and Jacob constantly were not speaking, but their messages were always revised and rehearsed and read aloud. So their thoughts, ideas, perspectives were always encouraging the Jewish understanding. In Advent Adventism itself, we have a particular ancestor still talking to us. And if you got like a little red book, you got a little red book there of one of our pioneers that wrote at the beginning of our understanding, we still have an ancestor talking to us. Now, obviously, there's no connection to spirituality. We know it's their voice that was recorded, that was written, that was speaking to us. But it's more of the understanding of what they were saying that is being passed down. And in Aboriginal culture, it's a similar thing is that our ancestors were educating us about what are our boundary lines? What are our song lines? What are, what's our language? What are our customs? What are our dances? How do we hunt traditionally? How do we take care of the culture? How do we take care of our land? And so when these things are passed down, this is how we find bridges between understanding. I think, Jesse, the thing is, let's understand before we try and judge on different areas and concept of things. So what we do in ATSIM is that we present areas of understanding, areas to have conversation. And so when we look at this, just this one topic, we can pull it out of the sky and say, you guys say that, you know, your ancestors are alive. As a Christian, no. As an Aboriginal Christian, no, I don't believe that. As an Aboriginal Christian, I believe that my ancestors are asleep waiting for Jesus to wake them up. But do their voices, do their messages still continue to instruct, lead, guide, and encourage us. Absolutely. And the fact for our NADOF theme today for our elders, that there says a lot about how important our elders are in finding identity, finding who we are. Now, now I've got cousins that are just coming into an understanding of embracing their Aboriginality. They were removed from family through breakdown of marriages. They were raised on a non-Indigenous side. And so they're coming into an understanding now we need our elders to be sitting around them and saying, hey, this is what your culture is. This is what the voices of the past were saying, who were Adri people are. And this is what our artwork looks like. And this is what our hunting practices were. I think that because the onset of how Christianity came to our shores, it wasn't done in a peaceful way. It wasn't done in the way that the disciples were commissioned to go out in the commission. It was done in a way to control, to take property, and basically to, to murder and to overrule. And so if when our First Nations people understand that about Christianity, then there's going to be a few walls that have been broken down because it wasn't God that came said. It was a religious organization of the day that wanted control. I find just sitting with First Nations people that have had their uncles and aunties and great uncles and great aunties that have been removed by churches into homes, into missions, and they've got a deep hatred for the church. When we sit down and we talk about this and say, hey, you know what, let me put things into perspective. It actually wasn't the gospel that was presented to our ancestors. It was a control measure from a church of a day that was doing this. So let me introduce you to who Jesus really is and who God really is. When we yeah. come from that perspective, we're getting people coming to the church now. They have bitter hatred for the church because they've met Jesus. They haven't met doctrine. I wouldn't even call what Pope Alexander done with doctrine. That was just cruel, cruelty. Coming from those perspectives, if we remain in our worldviews, in our lenses, 
that Aboriginal culture, well, they worship the dead. And if Christian Australia remaining their worldview and say, Aboriginal Australia, they do this and that, and we're Christians, we don't do that. We've got to start somewhere. Mm. And we've got to start with the gospel. There was a lot of things that the Hebrews did going into war and fighting, overcoming kingdoms and stuff. God didn't omit that from the Bible. God allowed that to be there to see the growth patterns and to see the identity of God and the gospel becoming more and more acquainted with people. The same thing. There is a past in Aboriginal culture. There is a spiritualism. We're in a great controversy. So the devil has got his way. He has got his lies and his wonders about, about certain things. But we represent a God, a creator, that's sovereign, that's over that. But he does it through love. He doesn't mm. do it awesome through fear. Yeah. I, I love what one theologian once said. He said that the God of the Bible is the one who doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the doctors and the builders. <laughs> That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's such a tragedy. That was not the form. That was not the type of good news that was spread back in the colonial era. But I love those areas of understanding that you're building because I think you're so right. I think the only way that we can really come to peace between these two somewhat, I suppose, opposing worldviews at, at times is to build bridges, not knock them down. So mm. yeah, that's a beautiful thing. What, a, what an important ministry to, mm. to hold. And we're navigating spaces such as smoking ceremonies, traditional hunting, traditional ceremonies, other things. And one by one, it's a matter of just finding bridges, finding gospel to make friends not to divide and follow the former church of the day that, that just eroded what the gospel stands for. Yeah, no, that's really significant. Just a couple of months ago, I went to a conference in Canberra, the nation's capital, and got an opportunity to visit the tent embassy there mm. in front of Old Parliament House. A really interesting experience, one that I'd never been through before, and it's really interesting to Listen to some of the elders that are there, that are sharing, that have been there for decades, just absolutely committed to the cause. Mm. And of course, the big hot button issue back then and right now, what we're in the midst of, is the voice to parliament. And mm. I recognize that we could probably very easily go down a rabbit hole here. Do you want to maybe take us through and we recognize, like you're not the expert. There's very few experts on this, and there's so many unknowns. As you were telling me before we turned on the cameras, there are so many unknowns about what might happen if the answer is yes, what might happen if the answer is no, the kickback, the consequences. Mm -hmm. Why are we talking about this, I think? Let's start with there. Why are we talking about this? What are the issues that maybe have precipitated this moment in Australian history, and maybe let's start there and see where that takes us. <laughs> see where we end up, eh? Oh, look, it's, it's such a loaded topic right now, and there's a national weight on, on, on this issue. And, and we don't know the perspective of your audience. We don't know everyone's view on this, ignorance or whatever pays into this. And as far as things go, look, as a man that comes from an Indigenous family and one thing that I'm struggling with is that it's 2023 and we are now looking at our constitution to identify the changes around First Nations people being identified as human because on our constitution, we are still listed as flora and flora. And I think this is one of the areas that muddies the water because if it was a referendum that says, hey, we're going we're gonna to change the constitution Australia, go to a vote. Do we allow First Nations people to change the constitution from fauna and flora to, hum to humans? The vote would be yes straight away. Australia, hands down, will say, are you kidding? Are you asking this question at this time, this day and age? It'd be yes. However, we can see that there's been, they've tacked onto this a voice to parliament. All right, what is that? What is a voice to parliament? What does it look like? How's it going to operate? How's it going to work? Who's going to choose the members? One thing we do know is that it's going to be a permanent part of parliament. So up until now, Jesse, there have been so many things that have been promised First Nations people. And when a change of leadership happens, those things have just been disregarded and we're back at square one again. And so one thing that we can say is that this referendum that goes forward, if it is a yes vote that Australia carries, 
then it will be a permanent voice that will go. Now, people have their perspectives, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Is the voice going to be good? Is it going to be for first nations people or is it going to be control? I, I had an opportunity to sit down in a committee that had different perspectives, different ideas of the possible outcome either way. And one thing that I'll say, it's a journey, Jesse. One thing that I would say is that I learned so much about both sides of the equator of this vote that my ignorance wouldn't allow me because I was just sitting on one perspective and I would not allow myself just to think, are you silly to vote the other way? But sitting down and listening and understanding where the, dif the different votes are coming from, and I'm talking about Indigenous people here, Indigenous Australia, I actually gain a lot of respect for both sides of the campaign because one thing that I've established is that the yes voters and the no voters all end up at the same place. They want change. Could you tease that out a bit? Because that, at least to me, doesn't make sense. I know. And this is where I was sitting for a long time because in black and white, it doesn't make sense. But for instance, people who have issues with the voice to parliament are saying, when have, when has the government ever been in First Nations favour? When has the government ever supported anything or listened to or put anything in favour for us? So there's a lot of suspicion around, is this still, are there going to be so many strings attached to this? Are we going to actually have the right to, to challenge the, priest, the, the perspectives of First Nation issues in Australia? Or is it going to be something that's just going to continue to be controlled and it's going to be staged as, yes, we have a voice, but the voice only can echo so far. It can only do so much. Mm. And so there's a vote of no confidence as to say, you've demonstrated time and time again that we have no faith in what you're trying to do. However, they still land at a place that says we need change, but we just don't trust where the change mm. is going to be coming from. Now, on the other side, the yes voters are saying, yeah, well, look, you're right. We all agree that something's got to change. We all agree with that. What we see is that those who are standing on the other side of the vote are saying it won't be perfect. It probably won't be what we want. It probably won't start the way we want it, but it's a starting point of something that can never change. It's in the yeah. constitution. It's there. We can perfect it. We can grow into it. There's three areas there, voice, treaty, truce from the Uluru Statement. And so we need to grow into those spaces. And I guess from that side of the vote, people are saying we're already there. We have something to nurture. We have something to stretch, something to challenge. We have a voice that we can grow. Now, Australia are going to have to make their mind up and, and people are going to have to come to a referendum and say, look, this is where I stand. One thing that I really appreciate is that our union from the Seventh-day Adventist Church have just put out a statement that just encourages the idea of voting itself to say, hey, as Christians, we had the democratic right to vote and we want to encourage everyone to vote. And what one of the comments that I made in our committee was that speaking as a Christian now, as a man of faith, is that nothing, wh whichever way the vote goes, Nothing changes for the gospel commission of Atsim because we will still follow God's commission of ministering to First Nations people and we'll still continue to minister in, the, in these areas. As an Aboriginal man, yeah, I would love to see change and something permanent. I would love to see this. So the next leadership can't come in and just tear that up and say, well, you know what, now I've got a different perspective of where we're going to go. And so, yeah, I would like, even though I know it's not going to be, it's not going to be perfect. I know it's not going to be as we want it to start, but there is a starting point. There is something that we can measure. There's something we can challenge. And there's something that's got, like I said, it's got to be permanent. It has to, yeah, it's got to be yeah. there. It's got to continue to be there. So I'm being careful here not to coerce. I'm being very diplomatic here. And because I think it's a very important decision that Australia is making. And if, if Australia would take their time and research, and understand, I heard a parliamentarian come out and say, if you don't understand it, vote no. How close minded. Wow. I would have loved for them to say, if you don't understand it, here are some links, yeah. here are some websites, here are some things, educate yourself. Let's not yeah. play politics with this. We're talking about humans. I'm a human being. My colleagues are human beings. 
And we feel like the nation is going to make a decision about us. And I love what our ASIM director, our national ASIM director says. He got really emotional because it is an emotional issue where he said that what he's had privileges that none of his family have had because he's, he's a minister of the gospel and he got a chance to go to college and he's educated and he got to have those opportunities in front of him that none of his family got. And if that gets taken away through a vote, what happens to his kids and his grandkids and so on and so forth? And I hold that same perspective. What happens to my kids and my grandkids, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties, if the vote goes in the way of not in favor of it? And so Australia needs to really take their time to, to research and to look at what this referendum is going to happen. I wish we could have doors crystal ball, whatever you want to say, and we could see into the future that if the vote goes, yes, this is what's going to happen to Indigenous Australia. Unfortunately, politics have got me in the way and we just, even yes fighters, are not confident to say this is what's going to happen. We know that dialogue will start and that a voice will be heard. How will that voice be managed? Will it be fair? Will it be fully represented around Australia? We don't know, but there is something there that we can start with and move forward. Yeah. So yeah, so there are, there, there's a lot of dirty water, muddy water. And what I would like to say to your listeners is don't just allow politics to make your decision. Actually go and look up some websites and talk to some First Nations people. And I want to encourage you, talk to both sides. And it really educated me and it really affirmed me that as an Aboriginal man, we all want change. Mm. We all need change. It's too long. We've been living like this for too long. And so we all need change. So your listeners to go and educate themselves and talk to First Nations people and gain an understanding of the importance of this vote to them, because it's also important to non-Indigenous people as well. Yeah, I think that's very true. And just to reflect on that, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. When I was at the tent embassy, it gave me a perspective that I'd never seen or felt. Probably felt is probably the right word to use because I cognitively knew the frustration of Indigenous people in this country toward the government and toward, as you've explained, the inaction or the empty promises or the mm. walking back of all that sort of stuff. But I had never felt it before. And it was only when I was at that place and I was standing in front of Old Parliament House and Canberra being all around me and so many important, quote unquote, pieces of our nation represented in this one place. It was only then that I felt the sense of frustration in myself and the, I guess, the keen desire for change, any change, like at all. I do wonder, and this is part of my reflection, what happens not just to the Indigenous community in our country, but to our country, if it's more no's, if it's more we tried, they said no, oh, we'll just move on. Clearly, I have to wonder what the consequences might be if the Indigenous community feels like once and for all that Australia and our politicians and our leaders just don't care enough to make any progress. Yeah, I know that's not quite a question, but it's, I'm just processing that in my mind. I don't know if you have any thoughts on mm, that. Look, yeah, that's a really hard, yeah, what happens to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia when they realize that the nation, or if they realize that the nation doesn't want, and this is where I, this is where I say that if it had been a constitutional change of our status, our identity as human, it would be a hands down, yes not a problem, but because it's been muddied the water, it's going to be a different Australia because many different countries around the world have already passed this. They've gone past it. Are they perfect? Is Waitangi Treaty perfect? No, but they've had a vote. The Navajo people have had a vote and they got a, they're working on a treaty. They've got a treaty. We are the only native people in the world that do not have a working active treaty. We don't even have a voice. We're not even human on our own constitution. So it's a national stage that's watching this as well. It's not just our democratic stage that's watching this. Not democratic, sorry, our domestic stage that's watching this. 
that's a national platform. And what is mm. the world going to say about how people have treated First Nations people? And I've been talking to my uncles and to my aunties about it. And there's a lot of emotion in this. There's a lot of how are we going to be, how are we going to be seen by Australians, non-Indigenous Australians, should the vote go no? Where, where, where do we belong? Where do we belong in our own country? I'm not too sure, not too sure how to respond to that question. I know that, as I said earlier, my identity is in Christ. And should the Australian people say no to a voice, I've got a very firm foundation that my saviour, I identify in him. But what about our First Nations people that, that don't have that foundation? And it's also a lot of emotion that should Australia say yes, there's going to be a lot of emotion in that too, where First Nations people are going to say, well, we're seen, we're heard. Many, many years we've been, we've been oppressed and denied that there was any slavery in Australia and denied that there was any missions. And there's a lot of emotions on both sides of this vote. Mm. And so Australia has come to a crossroads where they, yeah, they've got to choose. And I really pray that people are doing their homework and people are saying that, you know what, we have a right here to vote. Let's do justice to a people that have always had injustice thrown at this mm. provided opportunity. And I guess even if the answer is yes, as much as that will be a moment of celebration, I suppose in a way that'll also be a moment of what's next. What? How is this gonna? How is this gonna turn out? And that's gonna be a, an emotional moment as well. Yeah, and my understanding too, Jesse, is that it won't be perfect. No one should expect it to be perfect because that'll mm. just be set up to fail. And if Australians together would sit back and say, well, you know what, let's allow our First Nation leaders to grow into this space and let's just allow it to just organically grow into it because you can't expect after how many years of injustice and how many years of, of oppression all of a sudden to get a yes vote and then to be perfectly running this voice. I think that's just unfair and it shouldn't be ex expected. And yeah. yeah, it won't be perfect, but it will be permanent. Yeah. And that's the important thing. Luke, I just want to thank you for that, that response throughout this whole discussion. I know that this is a difficult thing to talk about and you know, we, we don't want to try and tell people how to vote, but I think as the Australian Union Conference has encouraged, do your homework and do your due diligence and vote, participate be part of the change that you want to see in this country. I think that's the thing that I would encourage every listener to do. And I also just want to end this on a, I know there's a lot of unknowns in this whole conversation and, and theorizing, but there is one thing that we can all do, and that is in one way or another, participate in, mm. in NAIDOC week and participate in what's going on. So look, for those of us who are listening here now on NAIDOC week, are there anything, any things that you would encourage people to check out, to, to look at, to maybe participate themselves if they're near somewhere that can, mm. they can participate in with NAIDOC Week as we close out this conversation? What would you encourage people to do to get involved with what's going on this year in NAIDOC Week? Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity for all cultures, not just non-Indigenous and Indigenous. We're talking about Pacific Islanders and European and the best place to understand that First Nation culture, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is at a NAIDOC festival, the best place because you've got stalls set up, you've got people that are pre presenting their artwork, their dress clothes, their cultural dances, foods, language. I guess the first thing to do is to probably go to your council website and then type in there, look in there what your area is doing for NAIDOC. Here in Brisbane, we have Maspero Park where all the celebrations happen there every year. And that happens throughout the whole week. So not too sure where your listeners are tuning in from, but if they can all go to their local council, a lot of the time shopping centers will advertise NAIDOC celebrations or themes for NAIDOC. If you're in the position that you, you're not too sure, you feel a little bit, don't want to go into that big space full of First Nations people and whatever reason, that's fine. Like you'll be welcome there. First of all, I want to say you'll be more than welcome. Non-Indigenous people are encouraged to come to these spaces because it's all culture. It's all about educating culture. But one thing that, that NAIDOC is all about is it's about growing community. That's what NAIDOC is all about. Understanding First Nations people, history, achievements, 
and the standout moments that non-Indigenous people have done also for Indigenous causes. So I guess the ultimate thing here is what I encourage my non-Indigenous people to do is go and make some Indigenous friends. Go and make some friends. If you don't have any Indigenous friends on your phone contact, in your social media friend list, I'm not up to speed with that stuff, but if you don't have any Indigenous, you're not a complete, you don't have a complete picture of Aboriginal culture. Go and make mm. some friends, take a pack of biscuits, if you're not diabetic, take a pack of biscuits and, uh, and have a cuppa and talk about NADOC. Talk about why our elders so important and so cherished in Aboriginal community. Talk about your elders, your ancestors, and how they paved the way in your life. And you'll come to a common space that our, our ancestors have played a very important role in who we have become today. And so mm. whether you're Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, or whatever culture, you can't deny it that your elders have spoken into who you are and who you've become. That's what this theme is all about, is for our elders, because they've carried a huge role, a huge load. In through a time of injustice, to a, through a time of colonization, and even beyond. So I'd like to encourage you to connect with someone, connect with things that are happening in your local area, and you can find that on your local website or even, even on notice boards around where you are, where you live. So I hope that you will take this opportunity to connect with First Nations ceremony somewhere, an excitement, an exciting time to be together and appreciate what First Nation culture is all about. And hey, making new friends is always a good idea. Hey, I had a saying go through school. The more friends I have, the less enemies I have. And so <laughs> the more friends we can make of different cultures, our worldview gets stretched, our worldview gets challenged, and we learn. And that's what NADOC is all about, learning about difference, but coming together as one. I love it. I love it. Oh, so good. So good. Look, Pastor Luke, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I have learned a lot. I have a lot of things have started to crystallize in my mind about a lot of these issues. And I think I'm just, I, as much as we have been dealing with some heavy stuff today, I feel a lot more light about it. I think that I'm a bit more hopeful and I'm keen to participate in, in NADOC week. I hope all of the rest of you guys are listening, wherever you're listening from. Seek out a NADOC festival, wherever you are, a celebration, have a good time, have a cuppa with an Indigenous friend. I think that is a beautiful thing. Uh, thank you, Luke, once again, for spending this time with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, love being here. and Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners and yourself too. Yeah, may God bless everyone and stay safe in this winter period. No more flu, eh? Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next time. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist Media Podcast.